Well, hello. This is weird, admittedly. Uh, I have never preached to an empty room of this size anyway. At least my chihuahua was there during seminary. So this is uh, really bizarre to me. And, and yet, uh, I want to be able to bring God's word to you. Uh, we as your, your, your elders, your shepherds, really desire to, to have that uh, as part of what our Sundays are looking like right now. And so we're going to do that. And so uh, if you will, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open to Philippians chapter 4. That's where we're going to be reading when we get started. But uh, again, I imagine that your life, like mine, feels incredibly weird right now. Uh, not sure what to do with yourself in a lot of regards. It's almost like, um, like everything was this well-working machine, and then this coronavirus virus lands like a wrench just being tossed into the machine, and, and suddenly nothing seems like it used to be. Nearly everything has come to a halt as we've been waiting for this tsunami of a virus to reach the shores of our, our peaceful little town here in the middle of Kansas, seeing it coming, and, and yet we're feeling the, the way it's affecting everything even already. I expect, again, like me, many of you have experienced this in these wonders of just trying to figure out, is, is this real life as, I, as it becomes worse and worse and weirder and weirder? You know, did, did it, from the moment of, did K-State really just shut down the campus for the rest of the year? Did, did the school system just, just close their doors for the rest of the year? And how in the world has all the toilet paper in the entire country suddenly been bought up, which tells you something about our priorities as people? I guess we like clean butts, right? Um, we're seeing stranger things happen. Restaurants have closed their doors. The playgrounds are wrapped in construction fencing so that children can't get to the playgrounds. No, there's no more visits to the library. We're not gathering for worship. This right here, which again is just the weirdest thing ever. Uh, and we've watched the stock market just plummet while, while we see a record 3.3 million people have filed for unemployment recently. And our hearts wrestle daily with being fearful, which on some level is, is completely understandable because we've never dealt with anything like this at all. Or, or, or also because, as, as Bill Boyce has told me, my generation is just a bunch of weenies. And, and he might be right, but none of our generation has ever dealt with something quite like this. And so as your pastor what I'm learning is that the, the two greatest fears that seem to be coming out of this, that we seem to be facing, uh, is, is one, this fear of sickness and, and death for ourselves or, or those that we love, and, and then this second fear that, uh, that, that, that our economy is ruined forever and never, ever going to recover. And, and so we're going to take this week to, to look at how the gospel, to look at what we know to be true about God and the scriptures and reality and, and, and faith in Christ and, and how that speaks to those particular fears. And, and then next week, God willing, we're, we're going to be back into Luke because we need some sense of normalcy. And so we're going to pick up right where we left off uh, in chapter 13, verse 18 of, of, of Luke next week. Um, just as we learn to live in this new reality whether it be a short while or a long while, none of us know. Uh, and, and so while I can't say this, I, I can't say that you're not going to get sick or even die from this. And while I can't say that our economy is going to recover, I can say with absolute certainty, absolute confidence that because we have Jesus, we have real reason to be filled with hope, real hope. And so this is going to be a rare topical sermon for us. 
And that means we're, we're jumping around a lot. If you want to try to keep up, keep your Bible open and be ready. If not, then you can just sit back and, and listen and, and take it in as we get to it. But like I said, we're beginning with Philippians 4, verses 11 through 12. And I'm going to go ahead and read those. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, the airwaves are informing us of great danger to our lives and our livelihoods. And as we bring these twin fears under the authority of your holy word, we ask you to sustain us and to change us, that you would melt away the power of fear by the strength of, uh, of faith and the hope that we have in Christ. Lord, may, may you be glorified as you empower us to love you and to love our neighbors in new ways. And Holy Spirit, do your thing in the hearts of your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so Psalm 13 begins with the question, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And you can feel the emotions in the author there because we understand that on some level because mankind has been asking that question ever since suffering first entered the world through sin in the garden, a single sin in a single moment that quickly spread like, well, this virus and in Psalm 13, it's King David who's speaking. And it's David who, who asked that question because he, he longs for an end to his suffering. No one wants to actually stay in their suffering, but suffering. But he also asked this question because he, he knows that the hand of God is in his suffering. In other words, David knows that God is sovereign even over his suffering. And it's important that you and I, that we know this too, so that, so that we know that there's purpose even in this, even in a global pandemic, even in whatever suffering that might come through this, there is purpose in it. And I won't even begin to, to attempt to define what God's purpose in COVID-19 might be, but, but let me ask you this from the start. In, in this past week, these past two weeks, how much more have you thought about death and eternity for, for you and for others that you care about? How much more have you found yourself praying because it's all out of your hands, out of your control? How much more have you called people and cared for people and, and cared just about your neighbors around you and talked to your children or your older parents, right? And, and I know if you're like me, most of you are telling your older parents, for the love, stay home, stop going to the grocery store because we care. Now, this has certainly brought to light that death is a real threat, that our lives are way more frail than we, we generally let on, than we generally experience as, as Americans in the 21st century. Now, Boris Smile, a singer-songwriter guy that I really enjoy, uh, in his joyful song, Home, sings this line. He says, life is an autumn leaf hanging on a dying tree. And that image has stuck with me. And the source of that statement for, for Boris, I'm pretty certain from the rest of his music, is, is the Holy Scriptures, which speaks often of how short life is. 
In Job 7, 7, Job says, my life is but a breath. And Psalm 102, verse 3, compares life to smoke that, that quickly vanishes. That's our life. While Psalm 144 says, our life is like a passing shadow. There and gone quickly. In our current context, we, we might be reminded of that well-known passage in James 4, verses 13 through 15. Listen to this. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. You see, knowing our own frailty is a gift of the Lord. For, for one thing, you know, and, and, and here's the thing, one thing that hasn't changed one single bit with the coronavirus is, is the overall death of mankind. In fact, it's still 100%, 100% of every 1,000 persons who is born, 1,000 of them will eventually die. And so if, if you were fearful, if you had any reason to be fearful of death today because of COVID-19, you also had reason to fear death three weeks ago or three years ago or three decades ago. And I, and I, and I say this, I say that, that, that to fear death is a gift because it drives us to look for, for a way of salvation. It drives us to look for deliverance from that fear. And, and the only place you can go you're ever going to find hope is to Jesus. And remember this, remember Jesus, Jesus did not deliver us from biological death. And so unless Jesus returns soon, right, we will all die biologically. He's, he's delivered us, yes, from eternal death. He's delivered us from the sting of death, from the punishment of sin. And as Hebrews 2.15 says, Jesus came to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's what fear of death is. It's a slavery to, to someone or, or something other than Jesus. When, when, when we feel insecure, like, like we all probably feel right now to some degree, some of us more than others, but like we all feel, when, when, when life's out of control and we become fearful, we, we turn to what we believe is, is most likely really going to offer us hope. It, it tells us a lot about where our, where our hearts are and where our, our hope is. That, that's why children, when they hear a, a terrifying noise in the night, they, they call out to their mother and their father because that's who they think can offer them hope. And so when things are out of control, just, just know it reveals who or what we believe can help. And so many today are, are turning to scientists that we hope are going to find a vaccine. We, we're turning to financial savings. Is it enough that we can, we, we, we can continue to live like we want to live for the rest of time? Or, or, or we're putting our hope in some stimulus pass, package uh, to do it. Or some plan, even this idea that we stay away from each other. You know, maybe we can stop this. And there's all these other things we're putting our hope in. And they're good things. They're, they seem to be wise things. But Christian, are you turning to God? Are you hoping in Jesus today? I learned the other day what the word corona means. If you've ever held a corona beer, you probably already know this. It means crown. That's why there's a crown on the beer bottle. But it means crown because that's what the virus looks like when it's blown up under a microscope. And it means crown like a king's crown. And I have to wonder if we, if we find ourselves in this situation bowing down to, to corona as a king, as a, you know, with the crown in this moment. Michael Horton, in this article that Travis had us read for men's group yesterday, it's a great article. If you don't have it, bother Travis until he gives it to you. 
Uh, Michael Horton says this. He says, we worship most what we fear most. For some right now, the fear of catching COVID-19 dominates the headlines. People don't worship a virus, of course, but, do, but many do worship health, physical, mental well-being. Fear is an index of the object of our worship, the one ultimately in whom we place our trust. And Horton goes on to encourage us that we have a true and, and genuine fear of God, true fear, fear of God. And he's right. He's absolutely right. But for us today, I I want to encourage us to find our hope in Christ. You know, now's the time to so believe the gospel that that saves you from your sin, that you so understand it, you so embrace it, you so believe it, that you will willingly share the gospel, share that same hope with your friends and your family and those same people that you're terrified are going to go out and catch this disease and end up dying or greatly sick. This, this is where it comes true. Do we really believe this? And in your own heart, for us to live as, as Paul so obviously lived, as we long to live like Paul, as we, we see in Philippians 1.21 when he says, for, for, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What, what greater moment for us to really dig in and make sense out of a statement like that, to, to live as Christ. How do we go on living even in the midst of some fear in a way that, that proclaims the glory of Christ and, Christ and the supremacy of Christ and all of our hopes in Christ? Now, the fear of death is, is alleviated when, when you know it would gloriously bring us into the presence of God. When, when you can not only know that as a fact that's taught by Christianity, but, but know that in a heart that it's absolutely true for you. And when you know that one day you'll be resurrected to a world where all of creation is restored and where sin is no more and where viruses don't, don't roam the globe and, and where death is no more. You see, Christian, when, when fear of death begins to rise in your heart, that's the time when, when you and I, when we need to remember that you are safe in the love of Christ, in the arms of Christ, no matter what might happen. Now, I want to spend a little bit more time on our fears of financial fears, simply because we, we, we often find ourselves, particularly working through the Gospel of Luke, dealing with this, this fear of death and, and how the Gospel speaks to that, but we rarely deal with the fear of poverty or the fear of, of a broken economy uh, in, in the way that we're experiencing now. So I want to spend a little more time there. And, and, and to begin with this, I want you to understand that Jesus spoke very often about how you and I relate to wealth. And, and listen, Jesus knows about wealth. I know we tend to think of him as just completely poverty stricken uh, and, and like maybe he doesn't understand wealth because he hasn't had wealth. But remember, Jesus is a carpenter. That's a, a job that paid fairly well uh, in those terms. And, and from the time that he began his public ministry, he actually had financial supporters that were able to, um, to provide for them. And the fact that, you know, you remember the cross and Jesus on the cross and the soldiers to start to divide up his clothing. They're doing that because his clothing have value. They're worth something even to these soldiers. Um, and, and we see that, right? When they say that his, his tunic is seamless, what, what they're saying is this tunic has value and they want it. That's the one they want. And so anyway, Jesus understands something about wealth and, and listen to some of these things that Jesus has to say about wealth. And, and, and as we do so, I want you to consider, I want you just to compare, is, is this the way I think about wealth? Is it anything like the way that my Lord Jesus thinks about wealth? First of all, uh, Luke 12, 15, Jesus says, Be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
Did you get that? Life, life is more than a bunch of stuff. It's more than that. We're going to get into that further. In Luke 12, 33, Jesus says, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide for yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. And it'd probably be fair to add to that, where, where, where no pandemic can come in and crush. And then in Matthew 6, 25, our Lord says, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And, and listen to what Jesus says here in, in Mark 4.19. He says, The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. You catch that. Jesus says that riches are deceitful. And riches are deceitful because we believe they, they can protect us from pain. But because we believe that riches are going to somehow give us a life that's worth living, uh, to build meaning into our life. And, and so we, we begin to build our lives about obtaining, uh, around obtaining wealth and, uh, and uh, storing up wealth and spending wealth on things. And again, wealth, wealth is not bad. Wealth can be a wonderful gift of God if we use it in a way that honors our Lord and the way that we bless others with it. It can be a wonderful gift of God. In Matthew 19, 24, listen to this. Jesus says, I, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And without unpacking that fully, J Jesus means it's difficult for a rich person to place their trust in Jesus because it is so tempting, so tempting to put your trust in money. Why? Because it does have power in our, in our economy. It does have power in our world. It is so tempting for the rich to do that. And so are, are you getting the sense then that, that Jesus views wealth different than, than you and I tend to view wealth? Because we, we've all seen the stock market crash. We fear it will not recover and that people are going to continue to lose their jobs. We fear, you know, at, at some point it might be me next. And I, I do understand that. I really do. My, my salary comes from the generosity of God through, through the generosity of his people. And I, I know people tend to hold on to their money when, when there are times of economic fear. Um, so I do understand that. But, but did you know that you can have a, a satisfying life in Christ with very little money? You seriously, really, genuinely can. I, I, I've been on a number of short-term mission trips with uh, mostly high school students in the past. Mexico and, and Guatemala, and, and the shocking observation of, of almost every student is, is something like this, where, where they see the way they live and they see the way their life's going on, and, and they have this comment of, they're so happy, and they have nothing, and they're shocked. They can't even make sense out of that. They, you know, they're observing these people thinking they, they live in a hut on the side of the mountain. They're washing their only other pair of jeans in a river down the, down the hill, They've got a wood-burning stove, and there's hardly any wood to come by here. There's no AC, there's no heater, and they're, they're happy? How, how can that even be? One student in Guatemala even told me this. They said, they, they have so little, and yet they're more in love with Jesus than I am. Yeah. In this particular case, that was the situation. 
And with all that in mind, remember the words of our Lord Jesus, which we read earlier in Matthew 6, 25, is, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. It is. This is, this is all strange then for us because, you know, we've been conditioned to think in a certain way about possessions. We, we really have. It's what many call the American gospel. This American gospel has us believe happiness comes with our next phone upgrade or with the next new pair of shoes that we get or new car or new house or new promotion or vacation or whatever it is that's going to be the next dopamine hit to come into your brain. We, we, we haven't always been wired to be, to the, to, to be so insatiably consumers, right? Insatiable consumers. We haven't always been that way. And, and in John Mark Comer's book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which is a great book, by the way, uh, he explains the history of how we got here as Americans. And, and, and he begins with this. Did, did you know that 100 years ago, 90% of Americans were, were farmers? And almost all possessions were what you and I would refer to as needs, not wants. Needs, not wants. To today, it's changed so much. Only 2% of Americans work in agriculture. Um, also, in the last 100 years, people have moved to the cities. And after the, the World War, these weapon factories that were building things for the war suddenly turned and began to produce things, all sorts of things, T-shirts and whatever people might buy. It's, it, it begins at, at this point, or that's the point where it gets really serious, where there's this intentional shift to, to actually create an economy completely made out of consumerism. Paul Mazur of, of the Lehman Brothers, which was a Wall Street investment bank uh, of some significance back in that day, said, said after the war, this is a quote from him, he says, we must shift America from a needs to a desire culture. People must be trained to desire to want new things even before old things have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. One businessman at about the same time in history called this the economic gospel of consumption. Consumerism is, is all most of us know today. It's just part of our life, but it hasn't always been this way. Again, a journalist in the mid-1900s wrote this. He said, a change has come over our democracy. It's called consumptionism. The American citizen's first important uh, first importance to his country is now no longer that of citizen, but that of consumer. Now, it took time for this all to settle in, but it, it sure has taken hold. We live in a house that was built in 1950, and when we moved in, uh, in the August of 2013, uh, one of the first things we noticed were the closets. We opened them up, and they were tiny, little bitty. And the question that was going through Laura and I's head was this, was how in the world is any husband and wife supposed to live, supposed to share a space this small? How in the world are we to do that? And uh, full confession where I'd like to say, well, we downgraded all of our clothes. Really, what we did was, was not that. We, we added a whole other rod in there so we could put twice as many clothes in the closet to begin with. Uh, and then we began storing our out-of-season clothes out in the garage in, in bins and so that we could continue to, to live the American dream, right? Um, there's no one here to get any feedback from. It's weird. Anyway, uh, in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, Paul is teaching a young pastor named Timothy how to care for, how to care for and lead God's people. And listen to what, what his instructions to Timothy here are. Uh, he says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. That's like arrogant. 
nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. There is so much to unpack in that. I, it's, it is hard not to like go into that. Anyway, it's so much to unpack. And, and in fact, here's the thing. If you are struggling in particular with this, this fear of the financial and the economics and thing of that, of that nature, take this next week and just meditate on, on this passage here, okay? Meditate on 1 Timothy 6, 17 through, through, through 19. Um, but, but today, I just want you to remember one simple aspect of Paul's instructions here, where he says, do not set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but set your hopes on God. That's a command. That's what we're supposed to do. Don't put your hopes in the economy. Doesn't mean we hate the economy. Don't put your hopes in the economy though, right? Put it on God who richly provides you with everything to enjoy. Kristen Welch in, in her book, Raising Grateful Kids in an Entitled World, told a story of speaking with an orphan in Kenya, uh, an orphan who owned almost nothing. And, and yet he just oozed this joy out of him. And, and she asked, them, asked him this, how can you be so happy? And his reply was, I have Jesus. That's enough. He's enough. And then she writes in her book, he says, she says, his answer was my undoing. Because I had Jesus too, but he wasn't enough for me. I wonder if that hits you as hard as it's hit Laura and I this week. Why isn't Jesus enough? Always. Not just in certain moments, but why is Jesus not enough for us so much? In, in 1 Timothy 6.8, Paul states this. He says, if, if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Has it ever occurred to you that we truly only need enough money to live on? That's it. That, that maybe following Jesus is more satisfying than Disney Plus or new clothes. That, because more stuff just results in more stress, more bills, more maintenance, more hours of working, more promotions needed so that we can pay for all this stuff. Comer, again in his book, says this, what if more stuff actually e equals less of what matters most? Less time, less financial freedom, less generosity, which according to Jesus is where joy is. Less focus on what life is actually about. Less, less mental real estate for creativity, less relationships, less margin, less prayer. Less of what I actually ache for. Which brings us all the way back around to the passage we began with when Paul is writing in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, and he says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so despite everything you've probably seen and the, the way we've seen this put in the context, Philippians 4.13 is not about sports. It's not about some great feat that we accomplish. It is about whether we are, uh, it's about being content whether we are rich or poor, either direction. In all this, I, I think one thing we can, we can learn as followers of Christ, as as people who hope in, in Jesus. We, we can learn to be 
minimalist. Not, not cultural minimalist. Get that idea out of your head. I don't mean live in tiny houses and wear black turtlenecks while you're sipping $9 lattes from someplace. Uh, what I mean is some idea of a, a Christian minimalist. Th- those who trust God to provide what we need and, and who can let go of what we don't need so that we might learn to live a more abundant life with less stuff. And maybe, maybe this is one way we wake up to this. Now, I know the, the transition, and, and no matter what happens to the economy, it's worth us transitioning. And I know the transition will be painful, but, but even a root canal is really trying to get us to a better place through the pain. And so I encourage us as a, a covenant community, let's, let's believe in Jesus and learn to live on, on less and be generous with more. Let, let's cultivate an enjoyment of, of the simple pleasures that God has gifted us with. Walks in the park and crossword puzzles and real conversations with people and slow meals that are just enjoyed. And, and the knowledge that Jesus prepares a place for us that is way beyond our means and yet has no mortgage at all. And you know, maybe, maybe the economy is going to bounce back even better. It really might Maybe it's going to tank completely. I don't know. You don't know. Nobody knows this but God. But either way, you need to know this. We will be okay. You will be okay. God will provide for your physical needs. He will. Maybe through a new opportunity for work. Maybe through the generosity of others. Maybe some other way. But somehow God will provide for you. Years ago, before we came out here, Laura and I were challenged by this question by by Francis Chan uh, that he asked in a a book he had written back then. And it was this, when was the last time you did anything that required actual, actual faith? And for us at the time, it was, it was really crushing because we couldn't answer anything. Maybe this is it. Maybe the fears of this, maybe, maybe all the uncertainty of the world as we know it right now is, is a time for, for you to grow in your faith by, by actually having faith, not just in Jesus to have died for your sins, not just for the hope of salvation, which is supremely larger, but, but also for the little things that he promises, like caring for you, providing food and clothing, to have faith in that. Now there's one more short passage I, I want to share with you. The prophet Habakkuk lived in a time when great suffering was upon the land and his closing statement in, in, in the book that he writes is recorded in Habakkuk 3.17. I want you to listen to this. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I reworded it. I wanted to put it into our situation so that we can understand this. In our culture, that what we're experiencing, it might go something like this. Though the economy does not flourish, nor flower beyond the shelves, The recovery of the Dow Jones fail and Dillon's yield no food. The congregation be cut off from corporate worship and there be no toilet paper in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So church, in the days ahead, I want you to remember this. God is real. Sin is real. 
Your sin is real. Hell is real. Jesus is real. The blood that he shed on the cross is real. The Holy Spirit is real. Faith and the absence of faith are real. Heaven is real. The kingdom of God is real. The human soul that will exist forever in heaven or hell is real. And if your faith is in Jesus, your salvation is real. Now I want to close with a prayer. It's an extended prayer. It's long, but I think it's worthwhile. It is so well written by Pastor Walter Hennigar, who was one of our, our fellow PCA church pastors, uh, Atlanta Westside. I'm going to assume down in Atlanta. Uh, so let's, let's pray. Almighty God, our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend, you who sit enthroned over the flood, we are staggering in the surf of breakers, bringing bad news and worse news while an invisible menace laps at our doorstep. Father of all mercies, have mercy on us. We are anxious, exhausted, angry, and sad. We need your peace that surpasses understanding to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Be our refuge and strength. Be our present help in this time of trouble. Even in this trouble, we thank you for the green spring life that refuses to wait for death's shadow to pass, for technology that unites exiles and draws the solitary near, for your church that prevails in catacombs and quarantine, for your own Holy Spirit who is sociably present with us always. But oh, forgive us, O oh Lord, for hating our unwashed neighbor in our heart, for opening our hearts to unfettered fear, for closing our hearts and our pockets to any in need, for loosing our grip on your precious and very great promises. Assure us, our gracious Redeemer, that our sins are nailed to the cross of Jesus, that we are clothed in the righteous white robes of Christ, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that nothing, nothing can separate us from your love. Great physician, we pray for those most vulnerable to this virus, for the elderly, the weak, and those with chronic conditions, for the poor, the hungry, and the isolated, for those already infected, Deliver them from this evil and prevent the rest of us from carrying it to them. God of hosts, we pray for the caregivers on the front lines, for doctors and nurses and healthcare workers, for police and firefighters and government officials, for parents in the home and under shepherds in the church. Guard and guide them, shield and sustain them. Rock of Ages, we pray for the newly unstable, for those who have lost jobs, lost businesses, lost savings, lost homes, for those facing the likelihood of losing even more. Hide them in the cool shadow of your wings. Provide every good thing for them that you, as a good father, know they need. Indwelling spirit, empower your people to serve to get wisdom and to live by it and share it freely, to embody peace amid the strife of tongues, to present our bodies as living sacrifices, to suffer with Christ in patient endurance. Give us all fresh confidence that there is no future where you are not present, no sorrow where you are not near, no tears not kept in your bottle, no locust-eaten years you will not restore. And so we trust you, our genuous, genu generous provider. If the curve does not flatten, if the market go does not pull up, if the shelves go empty and all of our accounts drain to pennies, even still, let us rejoice in the Lord our strength. Let us take joy in the God of our salvation. It's in the name of Jesus we ask. Amen.